This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Why Cthulhu? Ken's Bookshelf Providence Edition. Investigative gaming panel highlights. And the Priory of Scion. It blew up Kickstarter. It slid into Gen Con on a gurney with both guns blazing. And now Feng Shui 2 action movie role-playing is laying down the Kung Fu, the Gun Fu, and the Cybernetic Primate Fu at a retail store near you. In Feng Shui 2, you play a ragtag band of heroes. Inspired by the action movie canon. Especially the high-flying classics of Hong Kong cinema. Designed by me. Need we say more? Of course we didn't. But the gang at Atlas will think it's weird if we don't. Redeem your past misdeeds as a bullet-spraying killer. Heal the world through butt-kicking as the wise Sifu. Blast miscreants with the raw key power as a sorcerer. Channel the power of pure awesomeness as a transformed dragon. Or brain dudes with a parking meter as the big bruiser. 36 character types in all, bursting with furious action. Fight the bad guys who want to control the world. In the history-spanning conflict called the Chi War. Fought in the far past, the near past, a devastated future and now, now, now! For years, the number one question I got at cons was, when are you updating Feng Shui? Tons of people tell you the original changed the way they GM'd everything. And they're right, because they're experts on their own gaming experience. Well, now in a golden comeback for all time, Feng Shui has been updated, improved, streamlined... And clocks in at... 354 pages of gorgeously illustrated eye-smacking color. If your key powers can't stop a bullet, this stunning hardback can. You know it if you backed the Kickstarter. But maybe you bought the PDF only in order to support your local game store. Or like a full metal nutball neglected to grab the stunning GM screen. So now's the time to formulate a crazy plan that just might work. And contact your game retailer of choice. Reserving your copy of Feng Shui 2. That badass GM screen. And blowing up the movies, Robin's standalone book of essays on the action movie classics. Taking you inside the workings of 24 action movies. From the stone-cold classic to the unjustifiably obscure. Each essay shows you how the film delivers. And the lessons you can extract from it to enhance your own efforts as GM or player. So that's Feng Shui 2 in all its full-color glory. The GM screen and its likewise fetching utility. And blowing up the movies in all of its fun and dare I say it. You do dare, Robin. You do. Incisiveness. Now in retail. Go forth, dragons. Blow things up and... Save the world. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Thomas Deeney asks Ken and Robin, Why Cthulhu? By that, I mean, why do gamers love Cthulhu games, board games, RPGs? It seems as if you slap Cthulhu on a game, it just sells. What is the draw? Now, Robin, obviously, for me to answer that question is much like asking um, uh, Donald Trump why he loves adultery, but <laughs> you as the outside audience, why Cthulhu? Well, I don't know if I count as outside audience. I've been a, a Lovecraft fan uh, since I, too, was a wee nipper. Um, <laughs> in and I in guess this particular that, dyad, you are yes. you are the outside audience. Just, yes. just so go with in, it, Robin. In values of Ken or Robin, this, <laughs> you know, you obviously win the prize in this one. Um, 
I think, uh, well, first of all, I think we detect a note in uh, uh, skepticism in, in Thomas's question, do we not? Even querulousness. Um, uh, it, so this is, so when someone asks you to explain the appeal of something that they uh, themselves do not particularly feel, it's sort of an odd exercise because um, essentially you end up basically listing the traits of whatever that thing has, and then it's still up to you as to whether to uh, decide to like them or not. And uh, for me, the mental exercise to do here is to take a look at something that doesn't particularly speak to me and describe its qualities. For example, if I was to explain why people like modern dance, I would say, well, it is all about watching the bodies of people in motion to music, often challenging music and often uh, very uh, difficult, strange, innovative uh, movements. And so it's a fusion of the uh, visual with the performance aspect, especially if you're watching it live, of uh, seeing uh, these incredibly athletic, well-trained uh, people uh, executing the choreography. Or about hip-hop, I could say, well, it's all about taking all of the lushness and surface of previous forms of uh, African-American music and sort of radically stripping it down into something that is accessible to everyone that requires almost no technology to create and uh, reflects people's uh, daily lives and uh, reconfigures the social comment that has always been part of African-American music for a new generation. And those are both descriptions of why you might like either of those two things. And I don't dislike them, but they don't particularly speak to me necessarily, or I don't have the aptitude required to like them. But it's a list of things, and if you like those things, you you like them or not. So when I list the sorts of things that are involved in liking Lovecraft and Cthulhu, it's still essentially the same exercise. And at the end of the day, if those elements don't appeal to you, they're still not going to at the end of the day. And there are all sorts of things that make gamers love Lovecraft, and one of them I think is not necessarily sure that we can rank them in order because different people are like different things and whether these are the most important things about Lovecraft or not. One of them, for example, would be the sense of this still being an insider thing, that it's something that you discover, particularly if you discover it young, whether you are introduced to it through role-playing or by finding it in the uh, as one of the stories in an obscure paperback handed to your father and the book bites you and it's radioactive and it gives you the superpowers and great responsibility. Uh, that either way, that it's still something that hasn't quite burst through into the mainstream. So that if you catch a Cthulhu reference in an episode of Sleepy Hollow or uh, in uh, a Sam Raimi horror movie, you can then kind of nod and feel that, oh, this is for me. This is for the not just the, the geek tribe, which, of course, is now the pop culture tribe, but an inner tribe. And part of that is that the creatures are all reconfigured. So it's still the horror genre. But as the word mythos suggests, it's a whole new interlocking continuity of things that are just more complicated and gnarlier and therefore uh, more nerd mind worthy than your garden variety vampires and werewolves, which just anybody can like, including your aunt. Yeah, I think that the notion of Cthulhu as a tribal marker is the one that is the real important thing to talk about, because obviously I've talked since until I'm blue in the face about the importance of Cthulhu as a myth of the 20th century. You can talk about the fact, or the myth of modernity even. You can talk about the fact that Lovecraft's world is an ideal world for gaming because the characters are by design ciphers. But I think that the real reason that we as gamers respond to Cthulhu is because it's a tribal marker. It says, this is for you, the 
elect the elite, the deliberate outsider. And I think if you look at who else really likes Cthulhu, it's interesting because it's uh, heavy metal fans. And heavy metal fans are never the cool kids in the musical uh, mainstream or the musical community. They're, you know, looked on as this sort of juvenile or or, or side part of music, even though obviously uh, musicians like Ingvi Malmsteen are really great musicians, but they don't even get the respect of someone like, you know, Bruce Springsteen or Carlos Santana, much less a, a you know, a high art musician. So metal fans, I think, uh, gravitate to, I mean, I know that they gravitate to Cthulhu and maybe that's, that's diagnostic of why gamers do. Um, comic book fans, well, there's a, you know, there's a sub, sub genre of, of, uh, horror comics that are, are self, uh, defined and we like things that you don't like because you just like stupid superheroes, but we like horror comics and those guys are all Cthulhu fans. Occultists, uh, love Cthulhu, right? I mean, Kenneth Grant has, has brought it into the occult mainstream and the Simonomicon, uh, is, is a big deal even now in the occult, uh, underworld. And occultists obviously are marginalized either deliberately by a society saying you're weird and you talk to goats and you smell bad or by the occultists saying we have truths that you're not privy to you. So don't come around. Don't mob us with your public uh popularity because we're the occultists and so there there's uh, another self-selected tribal group and they bo- and they respond to Cthulhu so at some level i think that there is a point um at which you know, a metal fan or a gamer or an occultist or a french literary critic are all going to see themselves as part of an outside community or as you suggest an inside community within a larger uh, outside community. So amongst, uh, all nerds, there are still gamers who are the subset and we see ourselves as a, as an insider hieratic community that you have to pass certain tests in order to get into. And so Cthulhu, I think appeals to that because he is an occult symbol. He hides information. Uh, there's black magic and, and hidden books and things you don't know. And then also, uh, because Lovecraft was such a disturbed, goofy outside person and he poured so much of his own personality into the stories that those of us who identify as goofy outsiders may resonate with that uh, emotional tone, even though Lovecraft, except for the outsider, obviously doesn't really intend that to be the dominant tone of his work. Right. And in fact, if you are used to seeing yourself as marginalized, there's a weird uh, paradox in so far as if you know Lovecraft's biography, you know that he may well have uh, shunned and despised uh, people like you. Uh, Sylvia <laughs> Moreno uh, Garcia uh, had a really interesting uh blog post uh, recently where she talked about how uh, that whole paradox of being someone who is used to being othered and your uh, approach to Lovecraft and it's not the heroes you identify with and it's not Lovecraft and his racial attitudes themselves but it's the creatures it's the notion of otherness and so when you uh, enter the the world of the mythos you are exploring uh, the alien within yourself or the feeling of being alien and separate. And, you know, maybe you go through life feeling that people look at you as if you're conical and you have uh, crab hands. And that is, you know, there's part of a wider tendency of the sorts of people who gravitate to horror and the Gothic and the, uh, uh, all that sort of dark symbolism of the unknown. And that's because it's a way of, uh, mastering and, uh, claiming 
the fact that the world that you exist in, the society that you have to move through, uh, thinks of you as weird and alien. And so uh, you can say, yes, you know what? I, I do identify with the Migo or, or the great race of uh, Yith or what have you. And that's, you know, where you get your cuddly plush Cthulhus from. Yeah. And also, we, we can't underestimate the fact that the first Cthulhu game, uh, Call of Cthulhu, was really, really good. So it sort of establishes a, a, you know, a connection. Like if the first thing you ever eat with bacon on it is probably just bacon and bacon is tremendous. So if you see bacon in something else, you'll think, oh, that's probably tastes better because it has that thing, that really strong flavor that I really strongly liked. Uh, Call of Cthulhu was that. And so it establishes, well, if this, I wouldn't have liked ordinary word game, but I like unspeakable words because it's Cthulhu word game. And so it adds a way in even to other gaming categories. Like you may not be a board gamer. You may be a hardcore role player, but you'll play Arkham Horror because it's a Call of Cthulhu board game. Or you may be a, you, you may be a hardcore fan of board games and you would never play a card game, but you'll play the Call of Cthulhu living card game or you'll play Mythos or you'll play any of the other, uh, the, you know, the, the stars are right puzzle game. Uh, you'll, you'll play those because they have a common connection to something that you already really, really, really liked. And, Cthulhu has been lucky in a way that his first things into the gate, Arkham Horror, Call of Cthulhu, the, the, the sort of the category leaders that you first met in virtually all those categories are really strong games in and of themselves. So there's that mark of bacon quality as well as that mark of bacon, you know, sinfulness that you also have uh, that, that comes from that sort of outsidery element. So I think that you've got two things that would ordinarily be attractive working in synchrony over and above the fact that, yes, it's a compelling brand because it's a compelling myth. It's a compelling icon. It's the same reason, I suppose, that in ancient Greece, you know, um, uh, the, the Zeus uh, games outsold the games with stupid old Ares on them because Ares was boring and hateful and Zeus was awesome and got uh, to have sex with strange cow women. And, and also... Uh... Aries uh, IP owners were uh, a little too tight-fisted uh, with the with the property. Yeah, yeah, they they demanded a very high licensing fee. Um, one of the very specific things about Call of Cthulhu as a role-playing game is not just that it was really good, but about when it came along in the hobby and what it came to stand for in terms of what its experience uh, was. And I don't know if this is totally true now, but I suspect it may still be that, particularly at a small convention where uh, the people who show up to that con to run and play games are not necessarily the folks who are uh, burning with the new hotness of whatever the latest iteration of role-playing is, but are rather, this is their weekend to play a role-playing game. Let's get back together and get the band together and do the thing. That Call of Cthulhu has another brand value, which is it's the role-playing game where if you sign up for it, you will get to mostly talk and play your character and interact and have atmosphere and story, as opposed to the other main choice, which is some flavor of F20, which is mostly about uh, tactical combat and hitting things, and, and at least especially in its uh, convention one-shot iteration. And so for uh, at least a couple of waves of generations of role-players, Call of Cthulhu is synonymous with role-playing your character and having story. And I think that's tremendously a part of why it is still popular and why it's sticky, even when it migrates out to board games and other kinds of games. 
And when we start nostalgically recalling great games of the past, you know it's time for us to be shuffled off to the old folks' convention, or at least to another hut. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for pre-order by you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different Counters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent or turned by Edom or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, can unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope! Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters. Are both available for pre-order at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin. It's theirs. And that hut is full of books. It yawns with books. The shelves are tumbling with them. In fact, they may not even be on the shelves yet. I think they're in a big pile because Ken, as is his wont, is back from a place where they uh, vend books. And weirdly, a whole bunch of books jumped on Ken. I think in this case, jumped into shipping boxes and then showed up on your doorstep later as a veritable uh, bunch of things on a threshold. And Ken is now going to take, uh, very carefully of course, his utility knife and open up his box and uh, slit through the uh, packing tape and introduce us to yet another iteration of Ken's bookshelf. And of course this is the Great Providence Book Raid of Ot 15. Uh, you told us earlier about Necronomicon, and now, Ken, you're going to tell us about the books that you picked up there. And the first one is quite relevant to uh, Necronomicon. Uh, did you pick up The Spirit of Revision, Letters to Zelia Brown, Reed Bishop by H.P. Lovecraft at the show itself? I did indeed. I picked it up from the publishers who are the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, the good people who have brought you those lovely movies and who bring you the uh, the musical rock opera of uh, Dreams in the Witch House and do so much great work uh, for so many great people. Um, and they have, uh, because of their many tentacles, they were, if not present at the creation, one step removed from the creation of this book because a cache of Lovecraft letters 
showed up in a box in a garage at Thanksgiving in, uh, I want to say Thanksgiving 2014, but it was maybe Thanksgiving of 2013. But someone came to a Thanksgiving dinner wearing a Cthulhu shirt and the host or hostess says, oh, you like Cthulhu. Would you like to see a letter that Lovecraft wrote? <laughs> And the person, of course, said, goodness, yes, I sure would. And they went out to the garage and they opened up. They said, oh, funny hoax. Yeah, this is good. (laughs) And then they opened up the box. And in this box was not just a letter, but I think 35 letters that Lovecraft wrote to Zelia Brown Reed Bishop because the hosts were connected to uh, Reed's family. And through the vicissitudes of life, the box had made it to their new house in, I think, Ohio somewhere. And sure enough. Uh, the uh, interlocutor recognized the great value of this historical cache, and everyone got permission and, and set it up so that these letters could be reproduced in a handsome volume from the HPLHS. And it contains not only the text of all the letters, plus the texts of the letters that were in uh, select selected letters to make sure that the complete uh, or as complete as we can, uh, Bishop correspondence. And some of them are still missing even from this vault because he refers to things le- in previous letters that we don't have. So we know that we're missing at least one or two of, of the, of the letters. I'm just picturing uh, at ST Joshi's house, the red siren, uh, light going on to alert him to the existence of new uh, primary source material. Uh, and he, and he jumps onto the, onto the pole and he swoops down. Um, yes, uh, I'm, I'm sure that the, the lights were burning there in, uh, the, the strange high house in the mist or Seattle or wherever it is that, uh, ST lives, which is basically the mist. Uh, so the, these new letters, uh, basically sort of expand very much the, the way that Lovecraft would work with revision clients. They're the most complete archive that we have of his, uh, and, and so the, the first ones, she's sending him fairly conventional love stories and he's responding and saying, well, this is really strong. And I believe Ella's motivation for going back to young Ben and things like this. And it's like, did we get a different HP Lovecraft? But nope. Eventually he says, you know, what would make this story better is if it weren't about Ella and Ben at all, it took place in a hidden mound underneath Oklahoma <laughs> full of monsters. And, um, then he goes in and sort of, uh, begins to ghostwrite or I don't even know what you call it when you get an idea from someone and you write the story and you sell it under their name, but they ne- never really wanted to be a horror writer anyway, but they suddenly are in correspondence with H.P. Lovecraft and they're caught up in the, in the vortex of his personality. And the, the thing, thing is, what is known in, uh, in collaboration or ed- editorial circles as, uh, imposing your creativity, uh, on, uh, on someone else, but presumably it, uh, Lovecraft is describing to her how he goes about imposing his creativity. So it's a window into, uh, his process and his approach to writing stories. Yeah, and for and for and for one reason or another, um, she never really went back to writing mainstream uh, romantic fiction, which is probably what she had really wanted to do in the first place. And Lovecraft's advice to her on that front is also correct that she's not going to get anywhere by simply repeating back the the stuff that she reads in the terrible magazines. She wants to write good stuff that the terrible magazines will print against their will. Um, and it's good for her as an artist and good for, uh, I would think good for establishing a career if she'd wanted one, but because of the weird diversion that he takes her on into the, the strange and the haunting and the unusual, she never really, I guess, gets back to it, but she, in her memoir of Lovecraft, she re- refers to him as her mentor and says how incredibly generous he was. And like all of his correspondence with the exception of Sam Loveman, 
they, they, they talk about nothing except his, his, his largeness of spirit and his openness and his helpfulness. So I'm not sure. May, at, may, at some point she may have just sort of decided that she really was collaborating with Lovecraft on, on something, even though obviously when you look at the text, she gave him a paragraph of ghost story and he wrote a, you know, a, a short novella. But, but it, but the letters are, are, as all groups of Lovecraft's letters are, they're, they are, weirdly captivating. They're delightful. He's a great correspondent. He's a, I mean, he's a good writer. So obviously when he means to express friendship, he does it really, really well. And they're a window into Lovecraft's sort of weirdly persnickety way of building a story because he keeps telling her, here's what you need to read. Here's what you need to write. Here's how you need to use language. Here's how, and it's sort of like getting your own little, you know, writing tips from Howard. Right. So it could be, uh, if you were looking for a more exciting title, you could call it How to Write Horror the H.P. Lovecraft Way. You could. Although uh, the great thing about The Art of Revision is because it comes from Lovecraft's text of one of the letters, the actual text has the word revision crossed out and started <laughs> over again. So when they do the, the, the cover, it's The Art of Scratch oh, Out Revision, is which is... That, that must have made everyone at HPHLHS say, well, we can take the day off. Cuban sandwiches for everybody. Uh, well, this could be a segment, but we're not giving it permission to be a segment. So let's move on to The Pirate's Pact, the secret alliance between history's most notorious buccaneers and colonial America by Douglas R. Burgess, Jr. And so what? Uh, who, which pirates are we talking about and what was the nature of their pact? We are talking about virtually all of the pirates during what they call the Great Age of Piracy from, say, 1660 to 1720. So we're including Henry Every, Thomas Tew, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard, all the guys, all the, all the ones you've heard of. Henry Morgan, of course, famously began as a royal governor in the colonies by or began as a pirate and then became governor of Jamaica. But the later ones, rather than becoming governor, simply became in, in the same way that, say, the mayor of a given American city, let's call it Chicago, might be on friendlier terms with the mob uh, because the mob can give them valuables with which to get reelected and, and foot soldiers with which to get reelected. For the same reason, a colonial governor, even though he doesn't need uh, to get reelected because he's appointed by the crown in most cases, does get uh, advantages from having first cut of all the luxury items that come into, into port so he can pass them on to favored cronies and those cronies can back him up in the colonial legislature or whatever else he happens to need. So it's a, it's a way of, uh, getting power as well as obviously getting fat wealth, uh, because the pirates are bringing back fat wealth and pirates have to trade fat wealth for, you know, getting their ship repaired or, you know, ale. Uh, often they would drink ale, I'm given to understand, or stronger spirits. And so the, the pirates were, were good business because they were doing their pirating far away and they would take the money back and they would spend it in Rhode Island or South Carolina or somewhere. And so those local elites would look the other way at the fact that what they were doing was technically, you know, a hanging offense because they were, you know, they were pirating other people, Spaniards and Muslimen and whatnot. And here in good old America, they weren't pirating. They were, they were pillars of the community with a lot of money to spend. And in America, having a lot of money to spend will, will overcome any number of social faux pas you may have committed in foreign parts. Uh, next up, we come up with the geographically specific Spies in Revolutionary Rhode Island by Christian M. McBurney. Uh, what uh, were spies up to in Rhode Island that they weren't up to elsewhere? Well, I suspect they were up to the same sorts of things, but because Rhode Island was occupied by the hated British under the vile traitor Benedict Arnold for a while, they probably had more of a 
uh, sort of a resistance movement, much like the Culper Ring in New York City, which operated under the noses of the British occupiers, uh, the spies in Rhode Island would have rapidly turned from the sort of exciting um, uh, sailing out and scouting type spies in the early revolution to a genuine local resistance movement. And that I suspect is the, is part of what makes Rhode Island's, uh, spies more interesting than say New Jersey's spies who were almost more like sort of dashing partisans like in Yugoslavia or the Ukraine. Um, but the spies in, um, uh, in, in Rhode Island would have been operating in a, you know, in, a, in an urbanized environment. And so they would be much more familiar to your sort of, uh, you know, resistance in Paris or some other sort of occupied city. Uh, so it's got that flavor to it. Plus there's going to be a lot of, of names. And what do you bet they're all going to be na- last names that show up in Lovecraft's fiction? What do you bet? <laughs> uh, next up, we have something that actually, uh, dovetails with some research that I've been doing into uh, 30s LA for Gumshoe one-to-one. It's Protectors of Privilege, Red Squads and Police Repression in Urban America by Frank Donner. Uh, in LA, uh, the police, uh, who of course were notoriously corrupt in a political system in which the connections between uh, politicians, the mob, and the police were seamless. They were all mm-hmm. one organization called the system. Uh, they had a red squad. Uh, putatively, its job uh, was to uh, root out communist subversion. Uh, in uh, reality, their job was to uh, crack down on political opponents for uh, the mayor and his buddies. And I take it uh, that this... Uh, was true across America. It was indeed. Uh, it begins with Haymarket, basically. It, like all great things, it begins in Chicago. Uh, and then uh, this book also begins in Haymarket. It's a very comprehensive text. Uh, it was written, I think, in 1990. And so most of it is going to talk about uh, the, the great era of the Red Squads, which was the 50s and 60s. But of course, that means it's perfect also for Fall of Delta Green. Los Angeles does indeed have its own chapter, as does Chicago, which is the first city case studied. Chicago, the national capital of police repression. So I'm very much looking forward to digging into this. And of course, if you are going to be looking at covert uh, weirdos, uh, in a Delta Green universe, you're going to be looking, in addition to hippies and civil rights marchers and, and decent folk, and also, of course, communists, you're going to stumble on a mythos cult now and again. And those guys are going to get drawn into Delta Green, just like the CIA does or the FBI or whoever else. And so that'll be another great background, I think, for 60s uh, Delta Green agents, especially on the domestic side. And then it will also give you a a great, um, are we on the side of these guys? As they <laughs> begin to wade in with the nightsticks to start smashing the teeth out of elderly Jewish immigrants who ha- are publishing socialist newspapers or whatever other sins they are committing. Uh, next up, we have a title that I think in our audience will conjure unfortunate images of bronze robot owls, and that's <laughs> When Titans Clashed, How the Red Army Stopped Hitler by David Glantz and Jonathan House. And I think I've mentioned David Glantz on this very podcast, but if I have not, anything you read on the Eastern Front in World War II, if it is not written by David Glantz, you should read it at arm's length, because David Glantz is the only historian, probably including Russian historians, who had access to the Red Army's archives of World War II. And this was when, during the brief Yeltsin spring, they opened up all the archives uh, that, you know, weren't actually about how they were going around smashing up communists in Russia. And they said, yeah, no, you're an American. Go look at whatever you want. Cool. We're all buddies. And then that stopped being true. But while it was true, David Glantz went and he 
tore through the Red Army archives and the cage and the NKVD archives on the Eastern Front and came back with evidence of things like entire army group and army front level offensives that had been erased from history because they were failures. And so there are like a million Soviet casualties that Stalin just sort of hid in all of the other casualties he was causing. He did have a lot of them. He did. Yeah. Yes. If you're looking for where to hide a million dead bodies, Stalin's Russia during World War II is possibly the ideal place to get away with that. But this is sort of the big presentation of all of his research while also being a corrective to the fact that virtually all uh, histories of the Eastern Front are written from, consciously or unconsciously, the German perspective, because the German records were the ones that have been available for, by now, you know, 70 years, and uh, have been available to Western historians. And so even if you, the historian, have been studiously trying to balance everything, every source you've been reading was drawing from German records. You just don't right? have the materials. Because they didn't have the Russian materials. Uh, the Russian materials that had been translated were very paltry. The Russian materials that had been published in Russian were obviously ideologically unsound because the history of the Great Patriotic War, although in Russian military colleges, was studied very straightforwardly in the stuff that was published and allowed for export. There was, you know, is Stalin good? Is Stalin bad? What's going on? Well, you know, and so a lot of it was very much the sort of order of the day political fumfara that happened in, you know, everything the Soviets did. And so, uh, although a glance points out that the actual Soviet military historians that wrote for the Soviet military had crazy latitude a after Khrushchev, uh, or fr from Khrushchev's period down to write anything they wanted, as long as only for consumption by the Soviet military. And a lot of that is because the Soviet military got this crazy high prestige from, hey, guess what? Beating Hitler. And how great is that? Yes. And also, if you want to win <laughs> the next war, it's probably good to have accurate rendering of the previous one. Yeah. And, 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 that, and that sort of return to professionalism is one of the things that happens in his history, because we think of the Red Army as, oh, well, the way that they beat Hitler, uh, Hitler was just to drown him in their blood. Good, good trick, Red Army. But no, his point is, yeah, the early Red Army was terrible, but under these crazy evolutionary conditions of the Eastern Front, and because Zhukov had saved Moscow, and by dint of that got much more operational latitude than another general might have, the Red Army was able to train itself to fight a mobile tank war, and so his conclusion is that by the end of the war, it's as though the two armies have switched places and it's the Germans that are being hampered by political commissars at every front and being given insane orders and unable to uh, follow them for ideological reasons and making terrible decisions and, and micromanaging their troops, whereas it's the Russians that are the mobile detached units where every individual tank is able to make individual uh, decisions based on a common tactical and strategic goal that everyone understands because, hey, that turns out to be the way to fight a tank war. And the Russian army, which I think we talked about in our Trotsky episode, had a really strong core of, of war fighting uh, a tradition that he was able to go back to after the purges. Stalin had purged everyone who understood tank warfare in 1938, Whoops. which is not the ideal time, except Zhukov, who got exiled to Manchuria, where he fought the only tank battle that the Red Army fought before the uh, Nazi invasion against the Japanese in Manchuria. And so uh, Zhukov providentially is saved by time travelers or God or Lenin's undead corpse. Uh, and then it comes back and is able to sort of create this magnificent instrument that does indeed uh, stop Hitler, but uh, they stopped him with a considerably larger 
uh, death toll and for interestingly different reasons than we assumed the large death toll. So it's a really great book. Uh, it's, it, it's prose style is, is not, uh, super evocative, but that's just because it's so choked with facts. And it's, uh, it, it's the book on the Eastern Front. And if you aren't reading a book that has this front and center in its bibliography, you are reading a substandard book on the Eastern Front. End of story. From Soviets to a noted anti-Soviet, we go to Cold Warrior, James Jesus Angleton, the CIA's master spy hunter by Tom Mangold. So uh, I assume this is not the first biography of Angleton, who will one day feature in his own segment on the podcast. Uh, what is the angle of this one? Uh, this one is, it, it may not be the first biography, but it's one of the first ones to come out after the Cold War. And so therefore, after enough CIA agents had decided that they could, uh, because the CIA had a very strong institutional interest in piling dirt on Angleton right after his fall, because they didn't want to believe that they'd been penetrated. And then after the Aldrich Ames case, that, you know, that, that ship has left the harbor. So Maybe we should back up a bit and just give people a super quick 101 on Angleton. Okay. James Angleton is the head of counterintelligence in the CIA and becomes a very feared figure within the CIA because he is psychotically obsessed with finding Soviet agents. And this is after Kim Philby and the rest of the Cambridge uh, Five have made Britain's intelligence service a laughing so stock. 50s and 60s? 50s and 60s. And in 1963? Two, uh, he gets a defector who tells him that yes, there is a high placed mole in the CIA and you should go find him. And the great question, even now in, in, in intelligence historians is, was this a brilliant Soviet double play meant to destroy the CIA by setting the single most dedicated spy hunter against the CIA instead of against them. And that is the consensus still of intelligence historians. And so Angleton gets, you know, considered this sort of crazy cartoon figure, this nightmare. Uh, but the mole hunt that he launched, while probably in vain, did have the salutary effect of keeping the CIA mole-free until they did finally throw him out. And this book is uh, one of the first, I think, after, since it came out after the Cold War, to sort of begin to look at both sides of that. And I needed a Angleton biography, because obviously I'm doing Fall of Delta Green, and again, this is a valuable 1960s intelligence book, and so I asked Thoth Dionysus to send me one, and actually I got two books. One was just on the mole hunt, so it isn't here in Ken's bookshelf, but the other one is a, is a more general biography biography of Angleton, which is where you have to go into the background to find, you know, hidden forces that are at work on him. Plus, there may be vampires, so it may be a double a double tap, if you will. The next one, I'm not entirely sure what it is just in the title, so we're going to find out. It's Lamia by P.L. Thoreau de Vaujoli. Uh, that was a mouthful and a half. Uh, what are we talking about here? Pierre Thiraud de Vaugely was a resistance fighter who became de Gaulle's main intelligence aide during the war. Then he became de Gaulle's main intelligence aide after the war, which was a good place to be. And he uncovered evidence of a huge Soviet penetration ring in the French Secret Service, the SDECE. And he, he was the guy, uh, one of the guys who uncovered the Cuban missiles, uh, for example, and told the CIA about it. He was the liaison between the SDCE and the uh, CIA. And he tells them about it. 
Uh, he becomes the hero of the uh, Hitchcock movie Topaz. If you've seen that, uh, the, the main character is 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 devotionally uh, renamed. And uh, then after he exposes the existence of a mole in the SDCE, they say, oh, there is no such mole. You come back to Paris uh, and be punished for saying horrible things like that. And he defects. So he's the only French intelligence agent to ever defect. Uh, he defected to his good friend, James J. Angleton. And already this would be fascinating and interesting because what a great story. But he's codenamed Lamia. His codename is actually a vampire. <laughs> and so I see I'm going through the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the really very good espionage section there at Seller Stories Books in Providence, Rhode Island. And, uh, which after my departure became the pretty good, the okay <laughs> espionage section. So you spotted another example of history doing Ken's work for Ken. Exactly. And on the shelves between Mole Hunt and Cold Warrior and all the other books that I took down off that shelf, I see the word Lamia. And I said, well, this can't be as good as that. And it turns out, no, it's even better because it's about a, a French spy. And, uh, again, Anglophone historians are crazy parochial. And I understand it because I don't read other languages. They're, they're very hard and many of them are, are written not in English. Uh, other languages are in other languages. They are often. And so we don't have a lot of, or at least I don't have a lot of, in innate understanding of how the French intelligence system works, as opposed to the British or the American or the Australian or any of the other uh, Anglophone intelligence services. And they're not anxious to tell you. And they be being spies, they feel as though they shouldn't have to tell me. Um, and also the French government, I think, keeps a slightly tighter rein on their whistleblowers than the American and English governments do. Uh, and so there, there aren't that many. And so having a memoir by a guy, a guy who was sort of present at the creation of the modern French intelligence service is going to be interesting, even if his code name wasn't, and I can't stress this enough, <laughs> a vampire! <laughs> Uh, and it's just a fascinating story of, you know, you you think of defections as being from one side to the other uh, during the Cold War, not from one ally to uh, another, or putative ally, anyway. Yes, I suspect this is part of why the French got so shirty in the later 60s. Yeah. Uh, well, that sounds like it, too, should be a whole segment, but uh, this is Ken's Bookshelf, so let's move on to Symbol and Magic in Egyptian Art by Richard H. Wilkinson. I should point out that like uh, Spies in Revolutionary Rhode Island, this is not from Seller Stories. This is from Symposium Books, which is another perfectly fine bookstore, although it's more of a remainder store than it is a crazy haunt of crazy used books. But this one was a little crazier and a little usedier and is just what it says. It's symbol and magic in Egyptian art. So it goes through and it demonstrates, you know, if you are a, a what kind of god, what part of the of the wall you have to be painted on and what is having two wings showing mean versus one wing and all the other. It's sort of a, uh, a code breakers guide, if you will, as well as a broad history, I think, of uh, Egyptian art. And since Egyptian art underlies virtually all Western occultism to one degree or another, it is valuable in that level. And of course, because the Egyptians, clever folks that they are, believe that art was magic and magic was art. There is a great deal of deliberately occulted uh, symbolism in the uh, in, in their designs. And this guy, Wilkinson, attempts to deconstruct it. And as far as I've been able to tell from my first go through, he is not a crazy person. He is not, um, uh, talking about aliens or, or, uh, or, or whatever. Um, he is talking about things the Egyptians thought. He may be going a little bit in advance of the landing, uh, to give his own theory, but it's not, uh, this is not a bananas book. This is a grown up people book about symbol and magic in Egyptian art. Next up, we have Pulp Macabre, The Art of Lee Brown Coy's Final and Darkest Era, edited by Mike Hunchback. 
and Caleb Broughton. Uh, so who was uh, Lee Brown Coy, and what was his final and darkest era? Lee Brown Coy was an artist uh, who lived in upstate New York, and he worked in um, uh, scratchboard and etchings uh, as his primary uh, medium, but he also did sculptures and jewelry and all kinds of things that aren't immediately relevant to horror fans, because one of the things that he did was illustrate a bunch of Arkham House books. And if you have the Arkham House Lovecrafts with the black covers, with the insane white stark designs on the front uh the one of dagon i think has a whale being killed and i forget what's on the cover of at the mountains of madness but they are really really stark they're nothing like the virgil finlay sort of neoclassical stuff they're obviously not like margaret brundage's softcore horror they're not like uh you know hannes bach i guess is the closest of the classic pulps to koi but koi is still different from them he's definitely a modern regionalist so if you look at like a thomas hart benton that's more what you're looking at when you're looking at Coy and Coy after uh, Derlet's death stopped contributing to Arkham house because that was his hookup. And he sort of fell into uh, people forgot that he existed because he was, you know, doing this sort of marginal stuff for this marginal guy until basically Carl Edward Wagner sets up Carcosa house and, and thinks, you know, what was the best thing of, of ever was the Lee Brown Coy art. I'm going to have him illustrate Worst Things Waiting by Manly Wade Wellman and Mergenstrom and Others by Hugh B. Cave. And at the same time, Robert Weinberg is doing anthologies of horror stories and saying, you know who's great? Lee Brown Coy. But this is the very tail end of his life when he is understood that the art world has completely passed him by into abstract expressionism. So fine art is gone. Uh, even Derleth and the magazines in the uh, 60s were rejecting stuff of his because it was too dark and weird. And he thought, well, I'm never going to get to do anything. His health is beginning to go. And during this period, when he's rediscovered by the new, uh, the new horrorists, uh, Carl Edward Wagner, sort of at the center of them, he is having, uh, strokes and heart attacks and all manner of things. And he lives up in frozen, miserable upstate New York. And his art, it's always been creepy, but it gets extra creepy now. And he would, for example, he would go to the medical college and borrow cadavers. And he would go down into Civil War cemeteries there in upstate New York, and he had keys to all the vaults. And so he could go in and open the coffins and look at people and draw what a dead person genuinely looks like, but through this sort of artistic lens. And so he might be said to be engaging with his own impending mortality. He might very much be said to be doing that. But uh, as I say, he was always creepy, but this is super creepy. And if you've read uh, the great Carl Edward Wagner story, Sticks, the artist hero of that with the weird stick patterns that impress themselves into his mind and he can't get them out is Lee Brown Coy. And if you, and when you've read sticks and you did not know Lee Brown Coy exists to then look in an entirely unconnected book, you thought and see weird stick patterns everywhere is well, it'll, it'll wake you up. <laughs> and, um, uh, so that is how I sort of discovered Lee Brown Coy is in this shock of, Oh my God, it's all real. <laughs> and then, uh, I've, I've been a huge fan and now, uh, he is famous enough and there are enough of us that Feral House, who does just crazily good books on everything there, I, I believe they put together your wonderful, uh, side, init side order initiation book, um, also put together this fantastic pulp macabre, uh, and, uh, sort of pretty much everything he did since, I guess, from 1973 or so till his death and, uh, 74 until his death, something like that. And so he, he, he he's one of the greats and i think that uh certainly to the sort of eye that has been looking at things since 1900 in 
museums. His stuff, it, it's it's more immediate and terrifying than Virgil Finlay, where you have to sort of go back around through Hogarth and get get to it. So uh, to Uroboros this segment, uh, let us close on Unutterable Horror, a history of supernatural fiction by Necronomicon attendee S.T. Joshi. Yeah, uh, Joshi uh, has a sort of close relationship with Hippocampus uh, Press, which is the guys who publish the new editions of Lovecraft Letters, except for the Zelia Brown ones, because the HPLHS found them. So I also got like the new volume of his letters to Robert Block and things like that there. But this is something that is not just another book of Lovecraft criticism or another book of Lovecraft Letters. This is uh, Joshi's version of Lovecraft's essay, Supernatural Horror in Literature, except being Joshi, it's two fat volumes of text uh, going out to about 700 pages of uh, literary history and criticism, and then lots and lots of index. And this is basically a, just what it says. It's a history of supernatural fiction. Joshi takes it all the way back to Gilgamesh, but obviously he thinks that everyone is sort of running in place until Poe and then Lovecraft get there and show them how it is done correctly. And in his afterward, he cops to it and he says, if it, if it looks like I'm just saying that this entire first volume up to 1900 is the, is all about being precursors to the good stuff. Yep. That's pretty much what I'm saying. So, you know, good for Joshi for, you know, copying to his aesthetic bias. And, uh, so again, obviously reading it as criticism, you're going to pay your money and take your choice. But as history, Joshi as a historian has generally been really, really solid. Obviously he has a couple of blind spots about August or Leth or the role of uh, German armor on the Eastern front, but who among us doesn't? And so I think that uh, this is a, it's a good, solid reference book and a good, solid door into a lot of fiction that I may not have read or I may not be even familiar with. So and you may so, be able to comb that for some forgotten horror masters that we might want to take another look at. Exactly. And start sticking stuff back into games that way. Uh, well, we've uh, reached the end of your voluminous uh, pile of books. And so it's time to... Uh, uh, think about having Virgil reshelve those for you, or I guess shelve them in the first place, and move on to our next segment. Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666. He discovered the way that alchemical truths That sounds can be fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tove and Anders Gilbring. Not biological brothers. But brothers in role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Askfagelm. 
Gallon by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. As we do during the coming of autumn and the fading of the convention year, it's time for Ken and Robin to recycle audio. And this time we are recycling the investigative gaming panel, which happened at Gen Con. Uh, and it was uh, well attended by a excited and involved audience, which is the best kind of audience. When I saw on the, uh, on the site that the seminar had putatively sold out, uh, and I may have used putatively too many times during this podcast. Please forgive me, uh, putative right. listeners. Um, I thought, this is clearly a, a mistake. Something's gone wrong with the system. But no, uh, it was packed to the rafters. Yeah, they said it was going to be 80 people, and we were looking at each other and saying, yeah, right, there's going to be 80 people. And no, there was anything, there was more than 80 people. But like I say, the, the people were not just sitting there like lumps. They were involved and active, and so they asked good questions. And uh, Ben Riggs of the Pro- Plot Points podcast uh, recorded them with his high-tech magic fancy machine and uh, took notes to restate the questions so that we can hear them. And so all love to Ben Riggs on the panel are obviously myself and Robin, as well as the beloved uh, Irish lilt of Gareth Hanrahan and the English lisp of Simon Rogers and guest starring the magnificent Ruth Tillman, who is a prolific blogger in the horror space and the gaming space. Also, she is the editrix of the single best ebook edition of Cthulhu, except no imitations. Uh, you may know her as Cthulhu Chick on the Twitter. And of course, she has begun writing terrific gumshoe scenarios for us, which is the apotheosis of all such a uh, genius. So uh, she will be the female voice that you hear on the investigative panel. And we begin with Gareth talking about building investigative scenarios. Gar, what would you say are your sort of main discoveries having written a ton of investigative scenarios for various other gumshoe games? The great virtue of the gumshoe approach of always giving information is that you can... <laughs> you don't need sort of... Uh, have the information easily accessible to the players because they are by, by assumption seasoned investigators with uh, with excellent skills with uh, great insight with <coughs> great experience of like, finding clues you can make the clues more obscure and more interesting because you know you're giving them anyway so it's not a question of like you know spot like, do you, uh, roll spot to see if you see the footprint on the ground you go, as you're passing you notice that that guy's shoes have particular like you know shade of clay on them and you know being like, you know, an expert detective in London that clay is only found in this particular region of London in the traditional approach you have to like you know, either have the player roll spot to see the guy's footprint or have the same shoe show up again and again and again and again until they finally make aha that's the clue in gumshoe so hand the information and the question isn't, do they find the information? It's, what do they do with it? Our absent colleague, Kenneth Height, uses the example of in Lovecraft's Call of Cthulhu, there's a clue that the character needs to move through the story. So he literally trips over it, uh, written on a piece of paper, wrapped around a rock. And that's called the uh, virtue of narrative expediency, of moving the story forward. And information uh, makes the story more fun, more interesting, and moves it forward. So Ruth, as an emerging writer who's just coming to terms with... Uh, gumshoe in general. Uh, what did you discover about uh, crafting strong investigative scenarios? One of the things I've, I've found is that once you start getting people into the investigative mindset, it really feeds back on itself. I can give an example from Blood Coda, which I've been running here at Gen Con. 
I've run it twice so far, and I ran it for a group at home before bringing it here, as well as a few other playtests before that. But in the last three times I've run it, uh, I've really gotten people midway. There's a scene near the endish where you're in a warehouse, and there's a bunch of thugs, and the idea is you can... I assumed people would come in, fight the thugs, and then one of them would remain alive, and you could use interrogation, intimidation, and that sort of thing, because that's my mindset about how people tend to play, but really getting them in, into the investigative part of the game, what would happen is the warehouse door would go up, the thugs would knock over the card table because they weren't expecting you, and then people would say, can, can I use cop talk on them? Can I, can I use intimidation? Can I use interrogation? Okay, yeah. So every single one of those games has turned into this weird player interaction thing where maybe they spend some points so that they don't have to fight, but they do have to make some sort of spend... And they start, it just brings out a really different mindset in people once you start getting them into the game. And of course, some people uh, in previous versions of the playtest totally came in and, ah, six guys? You know, I, I, I shoot while they're still surprised. So. Um, and that's something that's uh, great about investigative games and whatever system you're running is it's something that gives the players a reason to pull themselves through the story in a particular direction. Uh, now, the classic dungeon format, of course, that's. Uh, you know, can be seen. That's definitely also an investigation, right? You're going from room to room, and you know, there's nothing more elemental than, oh, what's behind this door? Oh, something to kill. And uh, but an investigation, of course, has to occur in more of an order. It uh, you want to make sure that uh, you're often investigating a series of past events. So when you're writing the scenario, you have to uh, construct it so that the scenario. Uh, makes sense in both directions. So not only does it have a uh, direction that you uncover the clues in, but there's the uh, backwards direction of whatever uh, it was that whoever did this did in the order that they did it, and they both have to make uh, logical sense. Now, the main thing now we need to investigate is uh, why these scofflaws were late for <laughs> our panel and who they are. Um. I don't know if you've got the necessary investigative abilities to tell where we were. Okay, so now I'm going to use a bargaining. Uh, so would you like the rest of that book that I'm working on? <laughs> I think that's intimidation. <laughs> well, I, I have points in both. Simon. <laughs> assess his honesty. See if it's <laughs> He's not. <laughs> See, he got the clue instantly. <laughs> no points for Spain. Where should a beginning GM go to learn how to write scenarios that are hard, but not too hard? Ken? Well, I mean, start with the scenarios that you've run that already work. I mean, ripping off old scenarios is the core of game design. If that's news to anyone, write it down now, because it's true. Uh, just like you learn to run dungeons by looking at dungeons that worked and running them again, uh, only with orcs instead of kobolds, uh, you look at a mystery story that worked, you look at, a, at an adventure you've run that worked, whether it's one of ours or someone else's, and you say, why did that work? And, oh, it worked because there was a clear opening beat. It worked because there was only two choices. It worked because red herrings were kept to a minimum. You establish those elements, which we have tried to do in the scenario spine and the scenario skeleton stuff in our books, and you hit those beats again, only this time instead of the Hashishin, it's the cult of Yogg-Sothoth or whatever, right? It, it, it's, um, and so you take what has already worked, and you work it again. In terms of looking for an outside resource that will teach you to write mysteries that work as games, as opposed to the teach you to write mysteries that work as novels, there are not a lot, because virtually no game has a strong mystery-solving component that doesn't devolve to I roll criminology, right? 
in terms of actually putting together a mystery story, there, there's one or two uh, sort of, you know, there, there's a couple, there's many actually Call of Cthulhu adventures that devolve down to a, a, a cult investigation, but there's not a lot else, I think, that does. So I would say start with what, you, what you've already played that works, and then if you've read other mystery novels or watched other mystery movies, procedurals on TV are actually really good because they give the illusion of difficulty with no actual difficulty. So if you watch Elementary, which is perfectly tolerable, um, you'll see how they introduce the characters, you'll see how they introduce the storylines, and you can say, well, I can do that. And um, yeah, your characters are not, you know, a Lucy Lou, but your characters are also going to be put into that comfortable CBS 9 o'clock mystery-solving train, and then as you get adept at that, you can say, I'm going to switch it up. I'm going to not introduce the killer in the first act. I'm going to introduce the killer in, oh, I don't know, the fourth act. Who can say? I could do anything. And that, but, it, but, the, but the simplest kinds of mysteries are the ones that are going to work best on your table, at least until you get a lot more under your belt. So CBS procedural, so the simplest, simplest kind of functional mysteries you're going to see. I would also say read mysteries until you're sick of them. Um, my first year out of college, I did a lit degree, and I read nothing but mysteries and romance novels my first year out of college. I was so sick of reading classic literature and such. And what that left me with then was I started getting very tired of mysteries because I could see all the plot points that people were using, but that also gave me a strong analytical background for seeing how to tear something apart. So when you've hit that, then look at then how the scenarios you've worked have dealt with the same kinds of elements. So the mysteries that you like, not just any old mystery, but the kind of thing you might want to see at your table. And that's why, traditionally, adventures don't uh, sell super well in uh, tabletop role-playing, but if you are doing uh, mystery scenarios, they do sell well, uh, thank goodness, uh, because they are harder to construct. Uh, so, you know, as Ken says, don't be afraid to uh, lean on uh, a professional and uh, steal all their tricks. How much should a GM help confused players with information dissemination? Um, I do guide my players a little bit when they get caught in the thickets. Um, and often there, there are a couple reasons why that will happen. They will forget some sort of crucial thing that they knew before. Frustratingly, sometimes they will accurately piece together the mystery and then reject that as ludicrous. Um, uh, and uh, so you have to steer, and for some weird reason that is out of, out of nowhere. Um, and so uh, sometimes I will have them write the clues down on a whiteboard and, uh, and follow it that way. Um, and sometimes I will just say, uh, I'll come out and say, you know, you actually came upon it 20 minutes ago and dismissed it, but wait, wait until they've already floated a bunch of other theories so that they then have to go back and, and narrow things down a bit. Um, I would say that one of the things about role-playing games as opposed to reading fiction or watching plays is that the shared space, imaginary space, is very, very foggy. And things that would be really obvious to an investigator in, a, in, in fiction or in the real world, people sitting around a table, it kind of floats off into the imaginary fog. So to compensate for that, there's just nothing wrong when a game is getting bogged down with uh, you saying your character remembers this and just coming out with it. And it's always better, I think, to err on the side of giving them or reminding them of information that their characters would know and the only reason they've forgotten it is because they're playing a game rather than 
their characters are incompetent. Uh, so yes, err uh, on the side of that, I would say, and have them make notes. The, one of the great things about Knights Black Agents is that there's a big uh, piece of paper or noteboard in the centre of the table and everybody is writing things down and drawing lines between them or you know, using a cork board with pins and then they won't forget the clues. Uh, I find the investigative game stall for two reasons. Number one, the players don't know what to do next. They don't have any, any lead, clear leads to follow. You should always basically say, like, you know, here are the leads you haven't followed yet. Like, you know, you, you have like, the, note, the matchbook lead into that tavern. You know that the old guy was watching across the street. Go and talk to him. Like, you know, here, are the, here are the clear things you, you can do next to get more information. The illustration is the players have all the information, but they're going back and forth. They're not there. Spending all the time expecting what might be going on and not taking action. Um, sometimes you have to sort of spur, spur the ones and say, you know, guys, you have, like, the retirement on them, say, guys, you have to make a decision now. If they go hit on the right answer, say, like, you know, yes, you're on the right track, basically, as opposed to going endlessly back and forth and back and forth, speculating. And the other situation is where they're, they can't put it all together, and there you may need to sort of hint, push, <laughs> push them a little. Um, there's one fantastic ability in Mythic Agents called traffic, or traffic Analysis, which sort of lets you um, put together patterns in... Like communication, but also you can sort of say, you know, you guys know that like, you know, this guy came in on the train there and you never know, sort of pinned out and you know, he appeared like, at the uh, meeting room here, so you know that the enemy base is like somewhere between the two, for example. You can sort of help them put together what they have, but they have the characters do it, like, you know, your character can work out this, uh, this out because he's an experienced spy. I suppose saying, you know, you player, you must solve this mystery. Uh, one of the number one things that hangs up investigation in my group at home, and it's no way related to someone who's sitting in the back row, is the tendency to speculate before you gather enough information. So one of the ways that you can uh, gather uh, your players' thoughts is if you catch them doing that and starting to uh, you know, riff all of these various crazy possibilities without you know, actually having enough elements of what's going on to, to really do anything, to just say, it's, you know, your information gathering phase uh, is not over yet. You know, gather more information. That's what moves you through uh, any investigative scenario. And sometimes there is a tendency to shift prematurely into interpretation. Yeah, we, we had that with um, one of my games yesterday where... It was coming up to the end of the second act. We were exactly one scene before the big reveal. And one of the players said, Okay, everybody, I want to sit down and figure out what the vampire's actual plot is. And I had to say, Okay, well, maybe we should go to this reception first. And perhaps there'll yeah. be another clue there. Because as it turned out, in the next thing, he actually ended up getting in, ensnared, mesmerized by the vampire and figured out, Oh, yeah. That was, in fact, their plot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Entire room mesmerism. Yeah, have a vampire try to eat you and see if you can figure anything out while he's doing it. That's basically what Raymond Chandler said. Exactly. <laughs> I yeah. doubt I have a vampire eat you. Yes.
Would you like to sharpen young children's memory skills while also introducing them to the cosmic dread of the Cthulhu mythos? I'm sure we all would. Well, then Recall of Cthulhu, now kickstarting from the fine folks at Toy Vault, is for all of us. Recall of Cthulhu presents the horrors of the mythos in a way they were meant to be. Cute and cuddly. Amazingly adorable artwork of the elder gods and their ilk to delight the young and the young at heart. This classic matching game can be played by up to four of the most deranged patients in the sanatorium, as well as young cultists aged four and up. With rules this simple, a junior cultist as young as four can teach the game, spreading the madness to friends and family alike. As they progress in Eldritch Mastery, introduce them to the advanced game, which adds a wee layer of complexity. Included in the game are 60 tiles, representing 15 creatures, items, and places of the Cthulhu mythos, as well as two player aids for playing the advanced game. Twelve extra Dreamland tiles can be added to expand the game right out of the box. This slightly skewed take on a childhood classic comes to you from the cuddly cultists at Toy Vault. Funding on Kickstarter now through September 25th. It's time, once again, to wend our way up the creaky stairs. Uh, they have a few cobwebs on them. Let's just kick them out of the way there. Let's uh, quickly look up at the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky and head on in to the parlor of the consulting occultist. And he's sunk down in his uh, leather chair. He's uh, he's not smoking a pipe, but he looks like he might smoke a pipe if he did smoke a pipe. But what he's really here to do is to tell us about a, uh, a cult area of interest that I think we've mentioned on the show about 60 bazillion times, but never given its complete segment. It's always been a a footnote uh, until now, so let's uh, make it a full-on note, as Ken tells us, about the Priory of Scion. Okay, the Priory of Scion is a couple of things. There is the mythic Priory of Scion and the actual Priory of Scion. And the mythic Priory of Scion is the one that you may be familiar with, in which there was a secret order within the Templars that was established to hold on to a true royal lineage uh, back from the Merovingians who are touched by the divine in some mysterious fashion. And this royal bloodline is is protected by a secret order of the Templars, and the Templars established this Priory within the French infrastructure. And so all the cool kids from occult history, your Leonardo's da Vinci, your Victor's Hugo, all become the Notonier, as they call it, the navigator of the Priory of Scion. Through the uh, method known as retroactive recruitment. Exactly, the best kind of method. And they go forward into uh, the present uh, to establish the claim to the throne, the mystical throne of all Christendom, but certainly of France, of a fellow named Pierre Plantard. And that is the myth of the Priory of Scion, and you may be familiar with it in its most exciting version, the Holy Blood, Holy Grail version, in which Pierre Plantard's claim uh, to the throne comes from his being a lineal blood descendant of good old Jesus by Mary Magdalene, his wife, who is not either a whore, uh, and that's just a lie uh, spoken of by the church in order to blacken uh, the reputation of the secret bloodline. That the And this is why the Cathars get persecuted and the Templars get persecuted, as they're all hunting down the magical secret bloodline of Pierre Plantard. And it's great fun. Uh, I read the Holy Blood, Holy Grail in, uh, I guess, I want to say junior in college, something like that, right about when it came out. And when was this written? Uh, Holy Blood, Holy Grail came out in 1982. So, yeah, I, I would have read it. Actually, then I would have read it uh, right in, in high school. So reasonably new in the chronology of Crazy Talk? Yeah. And it became hugely, hugely, hugely popular. It, it bestseller uh, sort of blew the, the, the water out such that 
There have been now books about the, the, what is the real conspiracy of the Priory of Sion that begin by debunking Holy Blood, Holy Grail, uh, by saying that no, the sacred bloodline is a, is a false trail, uh, left by Pierre Plantard in order to distract us from the Priory of Sion's true agenda, which is to bring aliens, uh, to Earth as, uh, and let them be our controllers. And, and that's the real agenda that's going on. And, and so these other crazy books will then expose the first batch of crazy books. Uh, the Prior of Scion also, I think, winds up in the good old Da Vinci Code, uh, as well. If you are a fan of the Da Vinci Code or have read the Da Vinci Code, um, that sort of regurgitated Holy Blood, Holy Grail in page turning, but in other, all other respects, substandard, uh, conspiracy novel. So the, that, that's sort of the myth of the Priory of Scion. And the actuality of the Priory of Scion is that it was a shtick that, uh, Pierre Plantard got stuff snuck into archives by his little army of conspirators to backdate his group. And so when he said, I'm a I'm reestablishing the Priory of Scion. And, uh, he took it out and, f- and filed all of his claims with the, you know, place in France that you have to file, uh, fraternal order, uh, claims with. They could, they, people went back and they said, well, what is this? And they looked in the archives and sure enough, there's a, a brief message, um, hint of the Priory of Scion and there's little clues that are left around. And it turns out that there was this surrealist novelist named Gerard de Sed who, had basically decided that the world was stupid and thought that this was the funniest thing he could possibly do was make up this entire prior of Scion myth. And so he takes all the sort of other myths. Uh, so the, um, the, um, uh, Renle Chateau, uh, mystery, he puts that in the Templars, he puts them in the Cathars, he puts them in. So it's this great big league of extraordinary conspiracies invented by a really clever conspiracy it's, artist. It's a meta conspiracy. It's a conspiracy to create a conspiracy. Exactly. And I suspect that this is a lot of what uh, inspired Echo to write Foucault's Pendulum, because obviously this would have been bigger news in continental France when it blew up than it was even in America until Dan Brown. So when was the, the sneaking into our archives taking place the sneaking into archives was taking place in the late 50s and early uh 60s and plantard gets gerard de said to write his pretend history at some point in the 60s and uh then de said releases the sort of public version of the thing the the, the, the straight-faced you know uh mark facing version of it in uh, 1967, and it becomes a big sensation in France and gets everyone talking about the treasures of Rennes-le-Chateau and all the other mysteries. And sure enough, there's Pierre Plantard there to say, I have no comment. Of course, it, it would be unseemly of me. And why would it be unseemly of Pierre Plantard to comment? Very interesting. And then the job was that people would find out, oh my God, he's the true king of France. And he would get to, you know, get to good parties or maybe be king of France. I don't know what he was thinking because he's a crazy person, but the, uh, but the actuality is that Pierre de Plantard was a crummy little collaborator during the war. He had a, a newsletter that was all about, you know, uh, Aryans and swastikas and our fraternal friends. Oh, and, darn it. Yep. Yeah. So the Priory of Scion myth is not an anti-Semitic myth. It is a myth co-opted by a collaborator. But uh, De Sed was not an anti-Semite. There is no evil Jews are controlling everything in the Priory of Sion texts. Uh, his 
job was to make the entire French political and cultural orthodoxy look stupid, which is something I think we can all get behind. Um, and <laughs> I think this like went to was... a lot of extra effort to get there, but sure. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you're, you and I are not surrealist artists, so we can only gaze in wide yeah. wonder at the kind of effort that they will put out. So he's trying to, uh, like, uh, our more famous surrealist was trying to engender a psychic revolution. He was, he was, but I think just to be a jerk as opposed to create a new magical so world. A surrealist, uh, bordering on situationist. <laughs> Yeah, I think that there is, uh, Jared de said may be the doorway from surrealism into situationism or one of them. So anyway, the, the, the magical world of Prairie de Sion has blown up and been debunked and then reblown up because it's just too good a conspiracy not to use, even if you don't want to use it to claim that, um, uh, Pierre de Plantard should be king of France or that Jesus had babies or whatever. But you have this great infrastructure that de said has constructed. And so you wind up using it as I've said for uh the eu is actually the horns of satan or you use it as uh everyone is going to team up with the un to bring aliens to rule us or whatever it happens to be whatever your specific weird conspiracy is the prior of scion now becomes a nice universal joint you can snap into it and that i think is the real triumph right because when you're telling me that uh we're establishing a genealogy that gives Jesus a bloodline. I, I snooze in the corner. But when you're telling me that, oh, we're going to have this sort of Borgesian conspiracy to uh, create a false history that people then come to believe, then I snap to attention. That's because uh, when conspiracies are concerned, you are like the jazz fan who doesn't like Louis Armstrong because everyone gets it. Uh, I suppose. You are the you are the guy who is there saying, no, I, it's, it's got to be I really post like Louis Armstrong. I know you like I'm, I'm saying it's as though you are. Yes. It's a metaphor robin like right. the bloodline of jesus well if you will. i think also i you know I, as as an irreverent person as an unbeliever i that there's no skin off my nose one way or the other but uh the uh sneaking in the false history bit uh is positively esoteristic so that uh, yeah. you can the first obvious thing to do with this is to do an uh you know a, a new uh reboot of this whole conspiracy where people are trying to uh, introduce things into the uh, public record and you could start doing it by the internet you could create bots that start rewriting uh, uh documents in uh, internet archives and so forth and you could do a whole 2.0 version of that and that could be your conspiracy that drives uh any sort of uh, modern conspiratorial supernatural game whether it's the esoterrorists or over the edge or uh, unknown armies yeah and i do recommend uh reading both the holy blood holy grail in which um uh, Henry Lincoln brings in two collaborators. He's a believer and his two collaborators are less so. And as they're investigating, they're saying, this is odd. This looks like this was planted here. Why would that be? And, but they never quite turn the corner on it. And so a lot of the esoterror is made, it's, it, as, as the Masons tell us, they make manifest that which is hidden, uh, in order to pull off the, the con. And so it's really, uh, I recommend reading that just as sort of the, 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 the ground zero in English of it and as getting almost to the point, but managing to jump over it in your race to Jesus. And then I recommend reading the Scion Revelation, which is really, really good. It's by Lynn Picknett and Clive Prince, who are good writers. And, um, uh, they, 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 they bounce around in this, in this crazy pants world, uh, very confidently, which is good. They have a brio. They do their own research, which almost no one ever does. So Scion Revelation had a lot of good stuff about French secret societies of the thirties, uh, which I, uh, used uh, when I contributed to book, uh, to Dreamhounds of Paris. 
And uh, Sign Revelation does have the, as I say, the delightful segment in which they debunk a crazy conspiracy theory in order to bolster their own crazy conspiracy theory. And the the the, the sudden switch from skeptic to believer, it, it, it almost gives you like the ideological bends reading those paragraphs. So I recommend looking at that again as an esoterrorist example of how much people want to pierce the veil, whether it's a good idea or not. That's another that's another good one to look at structurally, as well as having lots and lots of good research in it as well. Now, I suppose it's too much to ask for to have a good source in English that is just a straight history of the craziness that is not the craziness itself, but is a, a story of how the craziness came to be. Um, oh, man. There, there may be a, because there was a bunch of debunking the Da Vinci Code books, uh, that came out and one or two of them may have it. But in terms of a just straightforward, here's, here's what's wrong with this story, story. Cause that's what I want. I want the procedural movie about planting all the things in the archives. I want the, the, the story of the meta conspiracy, not the, not the measly old conspiracy itself i i seem to recall that i have one book like that but i think that it is one of those where you you it, it's like the the jack the ripper book that assumes you've read all the other jack the ripper books right so it's, um, it's no good to you as an intro no I, I don't i don't think it's a very good intro and it's also not super well written either uh so it, it, it there, there should be a what i what you want is a biography of gerard de because he's probably the real interesting guy and then you could sneak stuff in that would be the um uh the 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 thing that would uh, let you know about the 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 building of the of the crazy conspiracy and the chance theory. of that currently existing in English is uh, phenomenally low. Yeah, because obviously people are we not. Don't know um, who he is. Yeah, right. He's not famous and awesome, although he should be. Uh, because, like I say, he is he is a a a veritable you know Dali in his chosen field. Uh, well, uh, that uh, brings up all sorts of other things we could explore, like the. Uh, occultism of situationism and how surrealism became situationism and you go off in sorts of other directions but instead I think the direction we should head in is out of this hut and to conclude this podcast Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Phoenix. Recall of Cthulhu. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep our bloodline alive by hitting the donate button at Ken and Robin talk about stuff.com. Thereby joining such illustrious patrons as Sean McAuliffe. Brace for the delights of our upcoming patron launching sometime, uh... After you recover from the film festival near the end of September. Exactly. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth I. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>